Hi, my name is Teresa Arndt, and I am the Creative Arts Director here at East Point. And I'm here today to share a true story with you. It's a personal story from my past, one that involves the church, a friend who is far from God, and me. Unfortunately, the story also includes betrayal, condemnation, and accusations that were being thrown at me. Only the betrayal didn't come from my friend who was living in sin. The betrayal came from the church, the people of God. I was attending a Christian university and a large church in Oklahoma City. The summer after my freshman year, I met this gal who quickly became a very good friend. Well, that was a problem for the church because the year before, she had been kicked out of the university and out of the church because she had chosen a homosexual relationship. My friend decided to hide this from me at first because... I was scared. I figured you were going to condemn me like they did. I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I felt very strongly that God was telling me I needed to remain friends with her. But that's when all the accusations began. Do you want to know what people are saying? People are concerned about the, because of your friendship with her and her partner. What do you mean concerned? People think that maybe you're too involved in her life. So because I'm friends with her, I must be involved with her too? You do realize she was expelled from this Christian university. Are you threatening me? Teresa, there are standards we expect you to live up to. Yeah, and God has standards too. And those are the, that, that would be loving the ones who need him, not turning my back on them. She doesn't want our help. We gave her a choice, Teresa. We tried to reach her. Choice. They basically told her that their image as a church was way more important than she was. Well, I did not agree with the way they shunned her. So I decided to stand up against those who claimed they had God's love and support the one who desperately needed to see his love. I don't see why you remain friends with her, knowing the lifestyle that they have chosen. Because every other friend, family member, or Christian has turned her away, so that the only people she has in her life are the ones telling her there's nothing wrong with her lifestyle. Does that make sense to you? I gave up on the church. I stopped going. I couldn't take the awkward glances and the whispering anymore. I had a few friends that supported me, but unfortunately, the condemning voices of the many drowned out the few. I was even in a car accident at the time all of this was occurring. Two people from the church that I knew drove by right after the accident, saw me standing on the side of the road in the rain alone. And they didn't stop. I didn't do anything wrong. But the attacks against me were brutal. My parents said I have to find a new roommate next semester. What? Unless you stop hanging out with that girl. I can't do that. Doesn't it bother you what people are saying? Yes, 
It's killing me. But I know that I'm doing what's right. I just cannot believe I have to do it alone. No one said you had to do this. Really? God did. If I don't, who else will? Not turn our backs and walk away. Not you. No. How could this have gotten so far from where I thought you were? Are they just drifting? I need to talk. 
this lifestyle. I want to walk away from it. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't know who to talk to. Can you talk to me? She was ready to come back to God and felt like I was the only person she could turn to. To this day, she has completely turned her life around and over to God. But sadly, she doesn't attribute it to the church. Instead, she said it was because of the love of the one who came after her when no one else would. From the time I was a week old, I've been a part of church. 54 years, that's a long time. I'm an old guy. But I've been a part of the church. In fact, as a child, my dad was a pastor, and I did the, did the math one day. Six different denominations before I was 18. So I've been a part of the church. And tragically, sadly, one of the most consistent things I've observed in the 54 years that I've been a part of the church is how judgmental and harsh and mean the church can be. Now, I'm not talking about you in particular. Now, I say the church, I, I'm referring to the capital C, the church uh, throughout the world. But unfortunately, we live in a culture today where most view the church as mean-spirited, ugly, harsh, judgmental, and they are repelled by us. They're not drawn to us. Now, I, that statement bothers me. I don't know if it bothers you, but it does bother me. And what bothers me about that is that when you look at the Gospels, when you read the story of Jesus, you see that Jesus did not have that effect on people. In fact, just the opposite. The worst of the worst, the bad of the bad, the people that were far from God in that culture were drawn to him. They were attracted to him and he to them as well. He didn't repel them. He embraced them. He accepted them. That was very, very true of Jesus, but it always hasn't been very true of the church, not the church I've grown up in. Unfortunately, too often the church has been known more for what we were against rather than what we're for. We've been known for what we're against, what we march against, rather than what we're for. And tragically, in pursuit of our own agendas and our own pet peeves, we've made being right more important than being relational. Let me say that again. Too often, in pursuit of our own pet peeves and our own agendas, we've made being right more important than being relational. Now, here's something I know. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. And I know when I make that statement, that pushes some of your hot buttons. Some people hear that and they get really upset. I hate it when he talks like that. What does he mean? I'm, I, I, what, what, what's this whole thing about being right but not being, you know, being relational? And, and we got to stand for truth. I mean, they make statements like, well, we got to stand for righteousness. The church doesn't draw a line in the sand. Who will? And I hear this from time to time as well. Pastors like you are liberal compromisers of holiness, <laughs> which, by the way, I'm not. But I hear that. And I understand the frustration. I understand their concerns. We do live in a world that's gone crazy with sin. We do. We live in a world where tolerance is the new standard, where that's kind of what everybody expects. We live in a world where people don't want to hear that there is a right and a wrong. And by the way, there is a right and a wrong. But we live in a culture that doesn't want to embrace that. In fact, the typical worldview that we live around is that everything's kind of situational and relative. All depends on the situation. 
There's no black and white. There's, there's, it depends. It, it all depends. You can't turn on hardly any TV programs anymore without seeing, if you watch for it, seeing the situational ethics relativism that is promoted in our culture. I've been watching a program uh, recently called Person of Interest. Anybody watch it? Jim Caviezel, I guess, is in it. Um, he's the guy that was Jesus in Mel Gibson's movie. Kind of weird for me to watch Jim Caviezel as a bad Well, kind of a good bad guy in this program. I keep thinking about Jesus. But anyhow, Jim's in this program, and uh, he has a, a kind of a, a, a sad, tragic past, and he's a mean, tough guy, and he can deal pretty roughly with people when they cross the line. And he, sometimes he crosses the line. He does things that are wrong, but the way it's projected, the way it's presented in the program is, well, it's, he's doing it for a good reason. It's okay. It's situational. I, 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 you know, he's, yeah, that's probably not healthy or right, or, or that's not good. And yeah, he shouldn't have beat that guy to, to, to smithereens or shouldn't have shot that guy. But he did it for the right reason. He did it for a good cause. And that's relativism. That is situational ethics, and that's the world we live in. And I get the frustration that many good and godly people have. Because honestly, there are many in our culture who have blurred the moral lines that are found in the Word of God. And I agree that we should not compromise the truth. So let me be clear, lest I get any emails. Let me be clear. I do not believe that everything is relative. I don't practice relativism. I do believe in absolute truth. And I believe that the standard for that is the Bible. That there is a right and a wrong and that the Bible teaches absolute truth. I believe that tolerance is not a virtue when it is uh, allowing or tolerating sin. That it's not a virtue when it tolerates sin. I believe those things. And I hope that's clear to you. But listen carefully to me. Listen to me. As much as I believe that, I also believe this. I believe that treating people from a position of self-proclaimed self-righteousness is wrong. It's wrong. When we treat people as if we are better than them, that they're scum, that they're dirt, that they, what's wrong with you? When we get an attitude, when we're mean, when we repel, when we shun them, when we reject them, that's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the way he was with people. Here's a little insight. Ready? Here's some confession 101. I have sinned. <laughs> I will sin. And, and that's, that is... The nature of all humans, we still fail. Even when we come into relation with Christ, that doesn't mean I stop sinning. I still make mistakes from time to time. I do. But God has always, and here's the, the thing that just blows my mind. He has always loved me, has always accepted me, always embraced me, always chosen me. Even when I was far from him and covered with a stench of my sin and the stink of my failures, God chose me. He loved me nonetheless. He embraced me. He reached out to me. I will stand on truth. I will hold on to the truth of the scriptures without compromise. I promise you, I will. But those same scriptures teach that God has always loved us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose us. You know, Jesus was the only one to ever walk on planet Earth that was completely perfect. Only one. The only one who never sinned. And so if anybody had the right to cast a stone at somebody, to accuse somebody, to judge somebody, it would be Jesus. Because he's the only guy that never blew it. But what we see consistently in the New Testament is that Jesus embraced those who were far from God, and he never cast a stone. He never cast judgment or condemnation on those that were far from God. My fear, here's my fear, my concern, and here's what breaks my heart. I think that we, the church, have drifted from the heart of God. We've drifted from his approach to people. We've drifted from his heart and passion for the lost. Luke chapter 4 uh, I'm going to read a couple of verses to you in a moment, but let me give you the background. Jesus is in Nazareth, which is the town that he grew up in. So he's, uh, he's home. Now, he's already done some miracles, and 
his fame is beginning to, to grow, and he's already got some disciples, but he's in Nazareth now, and he's, that's his hometown. And he goes to the synagogue. For a Jew, they would have gone to, on Saturday, Sabbath, and he's in the synagogue. So basically, he's in church, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And again, not uncommon for people to read the scriptures. In fact, they would have done that in their gathering, and Jesus was chosen to read an honor, given the, 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 the opportunity to read the scriptures that day. And he's given the scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, opens it up, and he begins to read this. And it's found in Isaiah 61. Luke quotes in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Let me read it to you. Jesus is speaking. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has put his hand on me to preach the good news to poor people. He has sent me to heal those with a sad heart. He has sent me to tell those who are being held that they can go free. He has sent me to make the blind to see and to free those or help because of trouble. Verse 19, he sent me to tell of a time when men can receive favor with the Lord. So Jesus closed the scroll, and basically his proclamation was, this is my, my manifesto. This is why I'm here. And in fact, I, I am the prophet, I am the Messiah, I'm the one sent by God to do this very work. Well, the people, his hometown, his homies got pretty upset. Took him out and wanted to kill him. They were not happy with it at all. Well, that's another story. But what I want you to see is that Jesus proclaimed without question why he came, his purpose. From the very beginning, his first message, his first teaching was found from Isaiah. And he proclaimed to everybody who would listen, this is why I'm here. Some have called this the kingdom of God manifesto, the, the proclamation of our purpose, of his purpose and therefore our purpose on the planet. It's why he came and it's why you and I are here. But again, the problem is we drift. We forget once we're in, once we've got relationship with God, once we've been forgiven, over time we forget what it's like to not be in. We forget what it's like to be out. And some of us have been Christ followers for so long that we forgot what it's like not to have peace. We forgot what it's like not to have hope or not to experience the forgiveness of the joy that we do have in him. I don't, honestly, I don't think we're hard-hearted. I, I, in fact, I cannot think of one Christian, one Christ follower that I've found that's just hard-hearted. But I think we forget we drift from God's purpose. We forget what it's like to have been there and to know that there but for the grace of God go I. And so we, we act as if we're better. And so that's the problem. That's the challenge. I'm going to call this driftitis. It's a disease. Spiritually, we drift. That's the problem. We have driftitis. What's the solution? What's the cure? Let me give you a couple things this morning that I think we can do. And here's the first one. Number one, take an honest look at your heart and ask God to help you and to change you. I think the first thing, if we're going to cure this problem of drift-itis, cure this problem that we, the church, we tend to have sometimes, is that we've got to ask God to, to look you know, and to change us. Take an honest look at what's in us, what our attitude is, what's going on, and then say, God, wherever I'm not like you, wherever I'm not like Jesus, then help me and change me. Do a heart check. I want to ask you a few questions. Don't answer out loud. But I want to do a few questions that will do a heart check for you. Here's the first one. Have you grown numb? to the pain and brokenness of those around you. Have you grown numb? Do you see people and their brokenness and their pain, and it really doesn't stir your heart? You're just like, oh, well, yeah, it's, yeah. And it just, you, really, you're insensitized. You're, you're, you're just numb now to all the pain around you. That's a heart that's perhaps drifted from the heart of God. Here's another question. Do you look at needy, sinful people with disgust and a bad attitude? And I'll be honest with you, man, that's me sometimes. Uh, rather than compassionate and brokenheartedness and feeling for them the way Jesus feels for them, I have a little bit of an attitude. 
Why don't they get their life cleaned up? When are they going to figure out? When are they going to stop? And I, and I get a bit of an attitude, and, and I, I look at them with harshness and judgment. And even if I don't say anything, it's here, and I'm sure they feel it in the way I treat them. Do you look at people with disgust or bad attitude? Here's another question. Have you given up praying for your friends and family who are far from God? I think one of the greatest indicators of where our heart's at is prayer. I really do. Uh, how many of you, when you are in need and your financial, relational, physical need, you pray to God? Let me see your hands. Come on. God, help me. I mean, when we're in a mess, when we are broken, when something's going on in us, what do we do? We pray. Now, even if we don't feel like we pray very well or we don't know all the right things to say or maybe we learn some prayers as a kid, you know, we're not, it's not the right prayer, but it doesn't really matter. I'm praying. You know, dear God, help me and, and please save me. And we pray. Why? Because we care because there's something in us that wants to, to, to get God on our side, to get God's help. Or maybe it's for somebody else, and we see the pain in them, and we do see it, and we pray, God, please reach into that life, reach into that person, and do something dramatic, do something powerful. When we care, we pray. I want to suggest that when we stop caring, we stop praying. And so the question is, have you stopped praying? Have you given up praying for that lost family member or last lost friend or that person who's far from God? And you say, I've been praying, I've prayed, I'm, I'm done with praying. I've prayed a thousand times and nothing's happened. Have you given up? That could be an indication of driftitis, of a heart that's becoming calloused and numb. I've got a family member who's in her 20s, and uh, she has really disappointed me. Uh, she's making some really, really, really bad, stupid choices and making some foolish decisions, and she's hurting herself and hurting her family. And I saw something she posted on Facebook. And uh, by the way, if you're my Facebook friend, I do read those things sometimes, okay? And uh, I just, it's, I, it's like sometimes just, and I, and I read what she posted, and I thought, oh. And I, I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I dropped to my knees and began to pray for her because I was so brokenhearted over what I saw. And I won't even tell you what she posted because it, it's embarrassing and it's crude. And I, I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I just fell on my knees and said, oh, God, please. But you know what I did? I got mad. Can't believe she's, she's, what kind of, she's, she's representing our family. And, and I got mad. And then I, I started venting to my wife. Venting's a nice word for griping, complaining. And, and I started venting to my wife. I can't believe she did this. I mean, look at what she posted. I can't believe what she thinks she And I'm into this full bore, complaining a great deal about it, and then it's like, I don't know how God deals with you sometimes, but sometimes, because I'm a little thick-headed, it's like God has to really knock me in the side of the head. Boobna! Because what hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks, is that she is exactly where I was 30 years ago. Talk about a change of attitude. Talk about something turning in your heart. As I realize all that she's doing, everything she... Where she's at right now is exactly where I was when I was in my early 20s. Far from God, messed up, making all sorts of poor choices. And listen, I'm so glad that my wife and my family and my friends didn't give up on me. They didn't stop praying for me. They didn't shun me or reject me. In fact, they pursued me and they loved me all the more. In fact, they did so much it made me mad almost. <laughs> Don't you know what I'm doing? Leave me alone. And they said, no, we just we, we love you, Kurt. No matter what, we're going to love you. And they prayed for me. Where's your heart? How are you doing? Maybe you've noticed the T-shirts that say 9941 on them. Anybody notice a few of those? <laughs> and uh, 
Joe came up with this idea, worship God. And I loved it because it, and I shared this story a couple weeks ago, but it's taken from the story found in Matthew 18 and, and Luke 15, which I'm going to read in a moment, moment with the Luke 15 passage. But it's found, it's called the, the, the parable of the lost sheep. And the story is that the shepherd left the 99 for one. Get it? Good. A couple of you got it. Great. The shepherd left the 99 for one. And then I love the bottom sentence, and I'm the one. And the whole point is that that's the heart of God, that God would leave those who are fine and doing okay to go after the one who has wandered away and is far from him. Luke 15, let me read you the, the, the story from, from Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. Him is Jesus. And they're all gathered there. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And they are not happy. Now, let me just explain to you. The Pharisees and Jesus' day, they're the religious right. They're the ones who, because of their pedigree and their performance, they think they've got it all together. They look down at everybody else. They, they were the chosen ones. They were the perfect ones. They were the ones that had it all figured out. And everybody else was scum. Everybody else was trash. And when this scum trash of the world started hanging out with this, I, I, this guy named Jesus, they were very, real upset about it. They didn't like it at all. So Jesus told them this parable. I love the way the Lord just deals with it. Now, let me tell you a little story, guys. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends. Not on the phone, by the way. They, they didn't have phones. But he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. The guy throws a party. He leaves the 99, goes after the one, finds it, comes back and tells everybody, I got great news. You can't believe it happened. That, that little lamby, I found him. I found her. He rejoices. And then Jesus brings it home. He says, I tell you, that in the same way. What's the point of this parable? I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Most of us probably have a bit of a challenge relating to the, the, uh, the story of losing a lost sheep. I don't know any shepherds in our church. So you've probably not lost a sheep, a, she, a, a lamb before and had to go after it. But how many of you have lost your keys? Come on, come on. Yeah, and that feeling is like, ah, and that agony and the angst and the anger and you're mad and you're blaming everybody. What'd you do with my keys? And, and you're looking everywhere. And then that feeling when you find them, you know, you know that feeling, oh, man, and, and you put them, you know, someplace safe and you're relieved. Maybe you've lost a child before. I, I have. I actually lost my son at a grocery store once years ago. My oldest son, Nathan, about three, four years old. And uh, he's a very smart kid, very brilliant, always has been, and always the kind of kid who was always intrigued by things. You could put him in a room and give him something to play with, and two hours later come back and he's still tearing it apart and playing with it. Very, very different kid. And I took him to the store with me. I like to kind of hang out with my kids, and so I brought him to the store, and I'm shopping, and he stopped to look at something. I don't know what, but he got intrigued with something, and he's messing with it. Well, I am, you know, on the great hunt. I am shopping, and, and I completely forgot that I had a son with me. <laughs> and I don't know how many minutes go by, but suddenly I realize, I don't have my kid. And my first thought, I wish I could tell you that my first thought was concerned for him. My first thought was, my wife is going to kill me. <laughs> she is going to kill me when she... And then I start running. I mean, you know, the panic. Has you, anybody been through that before? The panic. Oh, she's pointing at her husband. The, 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 
the, the panic that, ah, and you, I'm running around the store. I don't care at that point when anybody thinks, Nathan, Nathan, Nathan. I'm yelling around and people are, I'm knocking over old people. I'm, dr- it doesn't matter. Get out of my way. I'm looking for my lost kid. And when I found him, ooh, you know, the, the, the joy, the relief, the peace. Jesus put it this way. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The shepherd found the one that was lost and rejoiced. One more question on this point we'll move on. What makes you happy? What makes you happy? Is it the 99 that are all good and fine? Or is it finding the one that's lost and has wandered away? How's your heart? Here's the second thing. Second part of the cure for driftitis. Number two, get out of the Christian ghetto. (laughs) Now let me be clear. Ghetto is always a bad thing. And whether it's a place somebody is trapped because of their ethnicity or nationality or, or financial depravity, whatever reason why they're there, it's always a bad thing. And I intentionally use that term, uh, the Christian ghetto, because it too is a bad place. It is a horrible place. It is a place where Christians get stuck in their own little world and they lose touch with the people all around them. Let me define it again. I want you to make sure you get Christian ghetto. When I refer to that, and I've done it before around here, but I want to make sure you understand. It's that place where Christians withdraw and they build this little fortress. They're in this safe little place where they lose contact with the world all around them and they get stuck there. Once upon a time, my late 20s as a pastor, all my friends were Christians. My hairdresser, I guess you call him Barbara when you're a guy, my hairdresser was a Christian. My neighbors, the ones that I knew, we're Christians. I played basketball in a Christian league, which, by the way, was not very Christian. But that's another story. My, my uh, kids went to a Christian school. I listened to Christian music on a Christian radio station. I read Christian books by Christian authors about Christian topics. The Butcher, the Baker, the Candlesticks Maker, they, they were all Christians in my life. Everybody was a Christ follower. Even my dog was a Christian. <laughs> and then it dawned on me one day. It dawned on me, hit me. That is so not the way Jesus lived. See, there's nothing wrong with any of the things that I just mentioned. Not one thing. So, I mean, I'm in favor of all of the things I just mentioned. There's nothing wrong with them except when we become very entrenched and and isolated in our small little Christian world, our comfortable Christian world, and we forget why we're here. I want to speak to those of you that are here today, and maybe you're investigating Christianity, and you've been looking into what it would mean to be a Christ follower, or maybe you wandered in here today for some reason, and you're here, and you're And you're wondering, hmm, what's this place like? What are Christians like? And for those of you that have been mistreated, for those of you that have been shunned or rejected, maybe you had friends that you used to party with and then they got saved and they just completely cut you off and didn't want to have anything to do with you more. If you've been hurt by Christ followers, by the church, I'm going to ask you, please forgive us. Please forgive me. Because I've been there, I've been that guy who cut myself off from all of those in my world who were far from him. Once upon a time, I was lost in a Christian ghetto of my own making until the day it dawned on me, this is not the way Jesus would live and this is not the way he wants us to live. We cannot isolate and insulate ourselves out of fear behind some fortress of holiness because we're afraid of being contaminated or somehow compromised by the world. We've got to be just like Jesus. Because when we fail to do that, we fail to be like him. 
when we fail to reach out to those all around us. We fail to be the way he is. And I realized that I had separated, separated myself from the very people that Jesus came for. He came for the lost. He came for the broken. He came for messed up people. He connected with them. He loved them. He embraced them. He built relationships with them. He, he, was, he was their friend. And I want to be that kind of guy. One of my favorite stories is found in Matthew 9. I'm going to read it to you. But again, to give you a little background, Jesus has got some disciples. He's putting together his, his crew, his team. And he's going to end up with 12 guys. And one of the guys that he's about to select is a guy named Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. In that culture, if you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you were despised. Because that means you were collecting taxes for the Roman government, which was an occupying force in Palestine, not like. And you were considered a compromiser, a traitor to your people. And most tax collectors, in fact, probably all of them, ripped people off. They were to take X amount and give it to the Romans, but they took more and could charge more and were stealing from their very own people. And so they were not liked. In fact, they were despised. In Matthew 9, here's what happened. Jesus is walking along, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. And he walked up and he said, follow me and be my disciple. Now, I want to just pause here and see, I want you to see something. When Jesus walked up to Matthew, here's what he didn't do. He didn't say, Matthew, I cannot believe you have betrayed your people. You're an idiot. What's wrong with you? What have you done? How can you be so stupid? Why did you do it? He didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? He's at his tax collector table with a pile of money in front of him that he's been ripping off from people. And Jesus said, dude, come follow me. Does that strike anybody as a little odd? Where's all the self-righteous? Where's the, you better get it, your act together? No, he just said, Matthew, I see what you can become. I see what God has in plan in store for you. Come, follow me. So Matthew got up and followed him. That amazes me too. All right. <laughs> got up and followed Jesus. Later, <laughs> Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees, remember they're the guys that think they've got it all down. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? What is wrong with Jesus? I can't believe, do you explain this to me? They were totally baffled and irritated and frustrated and upset with Jesus over this. And when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And he quotes them Hosea 6.6, which as good, you know, Jews, they would have known. He quotes to them Isaiah, Hosea 6, 6. He says, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call those who, not, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Jesus said, I came, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Eugene Peterson wrote a, a paraphrased version of the Bible in the New Testament. It's called The Message. And here's how he put verse 13. He said, to go figure out what the scripture means. After, I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Isn't that good? I'm here to invite outsiders, not to coddle insiders. That was and still is the mission of Jesus. It's why he came, and it's why we are here. We must invest in the lives of people who are far from God and love them the way he did and accept them and embrace them the way he did. Now, please understand something. I, I really want you to hear this. I love the church. I love Christians. I love you. I love what God is doing here. I love, we try to provide a place where you can be encouraged and discipled and grow up 
and your faith and, and everything God wants for you. I love the church. I really do. But I want you to hear me say something. And if you don't listen carefully, you're going to misunderstand my heart. But I want to say something right now that's going to rock some of your worlds. I love you. But if I had to choose between you and those that are far from God, I'm going to choose those that are far from God. Now, does that mean I, you know, I don't care about you? Of course not. I, 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 obviously I do. And thank God I really don't have to choose. But if I had to choose between those who are in and those who are out, those who already know God and those who are far from God, I'm going to choose those who are far from Him. I'm going to work hard to develop a relationship with them. I'm going to love them the way God loves them. Why? Quite simply because you and I are going to have eternity together. I'm going to have to infinity and beyond to know you guys, to love you guys, to get to, to spend time with you. That, that's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to have forever together. But those who do not yet know him are destined for an eternity of hell. And that wakes me up at night sometimes. That breaks my heart sometimes when I drive down the street. That we sometimes drift from that passion, from that heart is what concerns me. On more than one occasion, I've heard someone say, and I have. In fact, I had somebody about three or four months ago email me and say, we're leaving the church because it's too big. And I thought, hmm. I said, you know, I've heard people say, well, there's already too many people in this place for me to get to know people, and blah, 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 blah. And when I hear that, I want to be honest with you, I ache. I ache. You know why? Because I wonder, who do they want us to leave out? Who do they want us to leave out? Jesus never left anybody out. He came for a world that was far from him. And he said, I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. That's his heart. That needs to be our heart. Let me tell you one more story and I'm done. Several years ago, a um, lady started coming to our church. Her name was Heather. And she, she's given me permission to share this story. But Heather's, uh, Heather Hoverman was a friend of Pat and Tony Ball. In fact, Pat was uh, on the worship team and Tony was on the drama team this morning. And Heather, by her own confession, by her own admission, was far from God. She kind of grew up in the church, but didn't have anything to do with God for a long time. And, and they, Pat and Tony, invited her to come to East Point. And she came. Um, God began to work in her heart and work in her life. She gave her life back to Jesus and fell in love with him again and loved this church and always used to sit over here. But her husband... Um, very, very far from God. Mike, in fact, not only far from God, but he hated the church, didn't want anything to do with the church, grew up Catholic, and uh, despised the church, all things Christian, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And she knew that, and so she just began to pray. Again, when you care about somebody, you pray. She prayed, God, would you reach my husband, Mike? Would you just somehow, somehow show him that you're, that you're for real, that you love him? Well, Tony and Joe Pittenger, our worship uh, pastor, and a few other guys, put together a mountain biking group called the Mob, Men on Bikes. <laughs> and uh, I think they're doing it again here soon. But anyhow, this is this group, just to get together once or twice a week, and they go up and do crazy things on bicycles in dangerous places and have fun. And uh, Tony invited Mike, Heather's husband, hey, would you like to come and mountain bike with us? Mike loved the mountain bike, and he said, well, yeah, I'm in. And so he showed up and started riding with these guys, who all of them, except for Mike, are Christians. 
And he started finding out that, you know, these guys were real, that Joe's for real. It's a little intrigued that Joe's a worship pastor. What does that mean? And you, know, you could pay for doing that. And I mean, it's just things, you know, that's like, wow, that's kind of weird. And, but little by little, just through building a relationship, Mike eventually came to the point where he said to his wife, Heather, Heather, I think I'm going to go to church. You know, when she stopped breathing and, <laughs> and said, wow, okay. Uh, they came, and again, they always used to sit right, right over there. Now, they moved to Iowa a couple years ago, and I miss them a lot. But, but Mike came and sat for week after week next to his wife, intrigued, interested, and finally coming to the point where he was won by the love of God and by your love, by the love of Pat and Tony, by the love of Joe and Betsy. It was love that won him to Jesus. A guy that was far from God, didn't have anything to do with the church, was brought to faith because Joe and Tony and these guys invited him into their world. They loved him the way Jesus did. That's my heart. That's what I want for you. By your heads, let me pray for you. Father, thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus for us, that you took the initiative to reach us. Thank you, God, that you showed us your heart and showing us how Jesus loved us even when we were far from you. And that's my prayer today, Lord, very simply, that you would continue to give us more of your heart, that we're, as a church, Lord, or as individuals, in any way that we've drifted from the heart and the passion of God for people in our world, that you would rekindle that in us again, that you would draw us back to the point, Lord, where we are willing to step outside of our comfort zones, willing to step outside of our small little world, out of our ghetto, Lord, and into a world that needs to know you, and that we would be just like you, lights in the midst of a dark world. So give us that heart. Give us that desire. Give us that passion. Help us to be like you, Jesus. I'm going to ask you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet begun your life as a Christ follower, but you know it's, it's time. You want to. You know you need God. You want his grace. You know you need his forgiveness. And you're here today and you're, you're just, you're ready. And nobody's going to twist your arm. Nobody's going to embarrass you. But if you're here and you know and you're knower, yeah, I need, I need to begin my life as a Christ follower. I need to become a child of God. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer right now. And if you'll just make these words your words, this prayer your prayer, then you can begin your life right now. Make this prayer yours. Father, forgive me. For I have sinned and failed you. I have wandered far from you. I am that 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 lamb that's gone off on his own, has wandered off, and I'm in trouble, Lord, and I need you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. And so today I come and give you my life. I surrender to you. And I accept what you did for me, Jesus, on that cross. I embrace your gift. I take it. I make it mine, a gift of salvation, forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that you love me. And right now, right here, I'm declaring my love for you. I'm yours. I belong to you. Now, if that's you in your heart, just in your own way, say, yeah, God, that's me. And that's what I want. And that moment you do, the scripture says you become his child. You cross some darkness into light. You become a Christ follower. The instant you say yes to him as a journey, and you, you walk with you every step along the way. But God is doing something new in you, creating a new person in you as you surrender to him today. Lord, for those that are making that decision, show them what it means. Show them what you're doing. Show them how much they're loved by you and what your future is for them. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with a song of worship. The ushers are going to come. We're going to take our offering. If you uh, 
have that tear-off tab with connection card prayer request, please drop that in the basket now. I encourage you to give to support what God's doing here. Give because you love him and you love what God's doing through East Point. And let's give as we worship. I'll come back and finish it up. I think that's become our theme song for this series. I love it. Hey, listen, guys, before you go, a couple things. Number one, if you begin your life today as a Christ follower, tell somebody. You will make their day. And if you don't have somebody to tell stand next to you, you come tell me. But on the table, uh, as you go out, the table is by the door. There's a package for new Christians. It's got a Bible and some material to get you started in your walk with Jesus. Please pick one of those up as well. There's teams down here that are ready to pray for you if you need prayer. So don't go that way. Come this way if you need prayer. Communion available on both sides of the room. And here's my last challenge. Go this week and understand that God put you in your world on purpose. And rather than drift away from that purpose, focus on it and be Him right where you're at. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming today.